0: The Honourable Lloyd Axworthy is the chair of the World Refugee Council and one of Canada's leading voices on global migration and refugee protection. After a 27-year political career where he served as Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Employment and Immigration, among other postings, Mr. Axworthy has continued to work extensively on human security, refugee protection, and human rights in Canada and abroad. He was presented with the Pearson Peace Medal by the Governor General of Canada in May of 2017. In his term as President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Winnipeg, Mr. Axworthy initiated innovative programs for migrant and Aboriginal youth communities and has also done a great deal of work on refugee reform at Germany's Robert Bosch Academy, Canadian politician, elder statesman an academic. Lloyd Axworthy, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you, Stuart.
1: Can I just add one sort of element? And I was just on a previous conversation where I was reminded I'm also a pipe carrier in the Anishinaabe Nation.
0: So Very good. So there you go. Sir. Yeah. And do you have a spirit name, Lloyd? Yes. Um, I can't even remember right now, but I'll tell you the story about it. Yeah.
1: I was at the ceremony and the elder... Goes through and gives me, I think it was Misha Ane white, which he kindly interpreted as having thunder voice. And I said, sort of, That's pretty nice. Until one of my friends uh, next to me, who is a First Nation, said, Well, he said the other interpretation is sort of a big mouth. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> 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 so it does put you in a humble
0: position. It's a great story. And obviously well-deserved. And to have the the relationship you have with the Indigenous community, not only in Canada, but globally, I think, uh, again, speaks volumes to why I'm just delighted that you're going to spend a bit of time with me on this podcast, Lloyd. So I appreciate that. And I, I did want to ask, just to start off a bit, how does a, a, a Saskatchewan lad who's born in North Battleford Find himself as the chair of the World Refugee Council. How did that journey happen?
1: Well, it probably happened as that six weeks after my birth, I was back in Winnipeg because my parents were both from Saskatchewan, and my uh, father signed up. It was just at the outset of the Second World War in thirty-nine, and he was assigned to Camp Dundurn, which was the big training camp for Canadian forces, and the. Acts farm household was outside of North belf and that's where he grew up. So he thought that it was uh, appropriate that while he was in training, that uh, my mother was expecting that they could be at least in close proximity. And of course, the other family story that goes that uh, once I was born, he was uh, immediately given orders to ship out, and he came to see his newborn son and didn't come back for six years. So there's a uh, I think my brothers in particular like to talk about that. But, but basically, I'd lived my early life in Winnipeg with my mother, my aunts, my grandparents, and some uncles. My father and five uncles were overseas during that period of time. And I think if I can just spend a moment on that, we always talk about those early years being the formative years. And I was very much influenced, not because I was verbally connected, but I would sit under the kitchen table when people talked about the war and the fatalities. I always remember my grandparents because they had uh, one, two, three sons in the row, Along uh, with my father and my uncle, uh, who was married to my mother's sister. And uh, there was always a pause uh, during that period of time, certain day when uh, there was a pause when I knew that the uh, casualties would be announced. And there was always this kind of just a slight tinge of tensions that I always picked up when you're a two-year-old or three-year-old. They became very sort of taken w- with with what war does to ordinary people and how it, not just sacrifice but just the day by day living under that kind of sort of shadow because you're always there. So I think that in terms of I look at my layering that goes on, it really started with that experience.
0: Well, what's great about that, Lloyd? We're going to get into a little bit about your politics. I mean, we do want to talk about the role that you have, the fact that it is world refugee and And the Migration Council that you're involved in. But, you know, you mentioned the kitchen table and I, one of the things that your time in politics, you know, that everything is local and a lot of local politics happens exactly around the kitchen table. So that's been a part of your world for obviously a long, long time.
1: It still is. It still is. That's, that's May it may be the back patio now that summer has come, but nevertheless, they've listed the restrictions so we can now talk to more than ourselves. So A welcome respite.
0: That that is that is a welcome respite for sure. So so Lloyd, you find yourself here in Winnipeg, and you go to university. You you ultimately find a passion around politics, and in particular, the Liberal Party of Manitoba and then the Liberal Party of Canada. Is there any particular reason you found yourself aligned with the values of the Liberal Party? Is that something that? How did you come to that?
1: I can take you to a very specific event, Stuart. Uh, I know it sounds kind of like the George Washington never chopped a tree story, but when I was in high school, I think I would be in grade 12 at the time, my history teacher, J.J. Phillips, wonderful teacher, assigned that our history class was have to be in attendance at the old uh, downtown Winnipeg Convention Center, the old auditorium, because we were going to listen to a politician. And we were all kind of groaning and moaning. and. He Basically, reminded if we didn't show up, 25% of our marks were on the line. So, I think me and my crowd I hung out and said, Well, okay. I know it sounds a little cliche. But it did change me because the speaker in the front was a kind of roly poly guy with a polka dot bow tie, a little bit slight lisp. He just won the Nobel Prize so six or seven months earlier. And it was one of those things where he talked what it was to be a Canadian. But we had a special location as Canadians that we. We weren't big, muscular military powers. Uh, We weren't a colonial power. We kind of fit into some niches, interstices in the way the world worked. But he said that we also had to, we also represented certain values. And I think it's true that as Canadians, we don't necessarily always vote for policy or program. I I think we vote for values. And uh, he talked about what it meant in that world about the liberal values of, of understanding diversities and pluralisms and, tolerance, but also being prepared to uh, stand up for principles of people's rights, human rights, that were so often being transgressed. And remember, he stepped into the Suez invasion, took on the big powers, went to the UN, got the resolution. Out of that came peacekeeping. And I think a lot of people sometimes misinterpret that. Uh, it wasn't just about peacekeeping, it wasn't the fact that he felt this country and others like us to play a very constructive and value added role in the world. And I, I remember walking out of that and saying, it made me think what it was to be a Canadian, and I suppose a liberal Canadian uh, as much as that. And it only fit in because I was also raised in the United Church family up in the north end of Winnipeg. And the social gospel is still a very much part of the United Church tradition, which I really much of it centered around then what was then the United College, as you would know. And the social gospel. As a Christian belief, is that to uh, to demonstrate your faith on earth to other people, and that means going back to some of those wonderful New Testaments, do unto others that they would have do on to do unto you, and that again was part of the. And I think Pearson embodied that, and that's I think where I, I got not uh, both a, a certain kind of patriotism and a certain and, and uh, tied into uh, into being a liberal, and I think that was that was really the pathway.
0: Yeah, no, and it's fascinating. And I mean, there's so many great books written on Pearson, and uh, that Nobel Prize piece I think has really been one of his legacies that people don't talk enough about. Sometimes you get into politics; they talk about your political past, and that's really leadership at a global, which is what you have become. And we're going to get there, Lloyd. But tell me, you've decided now that uh, you know there's there's principles that that Pearson at that point, from a liberal perspective. How did you transition from deciding whether you wanted to sort of just get involved and actually become a candidate?
1: I'm not sure when crossed the Rubicon. but I do know that following my education at the United College, I was privileged to get a Woodrow Wilson fellowship to Princeton University. Arriving in the United States in the 60s, civil rights movements, the Vietnam War, you know, student rebellions. I mean, there was such a kind of pent-up effort to... Change, it it was transformative in so many ways, in the particularly in the area of ideas. And I remember when I was involved tangentially in some of the civil rights activities in the state, learning that the best kind of decisions are made by the people who actually are affected by those decisions. That kind of participation, and it struck me that it was a there was a certain calling. But here was the difference, Stuart. And I think I've tried it. I always believe that, you know, you could be out there on the barricades, and, and that's an absolutely essential, valuable rule in the world today. But if there aren't people on the other side of it, in Parliament, and legislatures, and assemblies, councils, who are prepared to listen and respond, then it doesn't work. You need to have, to I mean, use the old football expression, Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. And I think, so I, I felt that getting into politics, to me, was a calling. And I, I don't want to sound sort of Pollyannish about it, sir, but. To me, it's always been one of the great privileges of my life. And I I can recall in those days when I first started getting elected, I would, uh, on the day of the election, I would be out knocking on doors and bringing people to the polls. But along about six six o'clock, I'd retire to my bathtub and pour a bottle of scotch, not the same brand I drink today, but nevertheless, a decent scotch. I would sit back and contemplate the incongruity that there were thousands of people out there deciding my future. and through that, kind of the future of things I believed in. It a, it's an incredible feeling to have that sense. Well, you've been there. The elected office, I think it's too often sort of uh, tirated again. People say, oh, you know, politicians aren't always held in a very high regard. But that whole idea of a public trust, realizing that there's representative parliamentary system, that there's all kinds of people who get out of their, out of their couch and away from work, and walk down to a school or a church basement and cast a vote for somebody. That's a remarkable, remarkable. And I think that's why, well, if I can do this fast forward, that's why it's so important to keep a real vigilance today that we don't give it away.
0: Yeah, Lloyd, I think that you have really sort of epitomized what the, you know, sort of a small town kid who had a belief in something who came across an opportunity to make a difference. Uh, Clearly going to Princeton in the 60s, I mean, exposed to all of the stuff that you just mentioned. But now you find yourself successfully elected as a member of parliament and into cabinet and and becoming sort of Canada's representative abroad as the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. What did you get a sense that you could do in that capacity as a minister? Again, understanding Canada's role globally, which I think you've got a great sense of. But now you are the leading minister, the Minister of Foreign Affairs representing Canada. What were some of your experiences that had an impact that really allowed you to take this passionate stance around the World Refugee Council, which you're involved in today?
1: Well, I think one of the, one of the first things is by the time I, was, I had gone through both provincial and federal elections, I'd been through you know, beginning in 1973. So we're now talking 1996. I had experience, I had been on all of different sort of events, circumstances, fights, sort of reconciliations, compromises. By the time I got there, I wasn't a newbie. I, I wasn't having to find my way to the washroom. Uh, I knew how the system worked, generally. You know, and I had been tested, I guess. It does disturb me sometimes that uh, so often that notion of experience is discounted. Uh, people don't give credit because I think pol- politics is as much of, of a skill or a craft you know, as... as building a brick wall or writing a new computer program. You have to know and understand. And so I think that was part of it. By the time I got to become foreign affairs minister, I had been in the provincial legislature for seven years in in a minority position. At one point, I was the only liberal in the Manitoba legislature. But it was interesting because in those days, I had uh, colleagues in in the New Democratic Party and the Conservative Party who would be willing to join me to sponsor a resolution or a bill. I mean, there was a lot more dialogue, a lot more sort of feeling that, sure, you're out in the chamber and you go at it, sort of tooth and nail, but when you get behind the curtain, you say, look, isn't it time for a cup of coffee? And how's your new kid doing? I mean, that was, again, part of it was learning that the politics is the art of the possible, but it's only possible when you are required, compelled, obliged, To get along and to hold to your truths, but not to the point where your truth is the only truth. And I think that was part of it.
0: Yeah. And I think, Lloyd, you say it very well. The fact is that you're talking about being an MLA, so representing a constituency here in Manitoba before you went down to Ottawa. But the principle would apply in, in the sense that when you're talking about being the lone liberal, you look across the aisle at the New Democrats and the progressive conservatives. I mean, you have one thing in common, maybe many, but one thing in common. You're all Manitobans. You all live in this province.
1: That's right. And you you want to do some good. And I'll just give you an example if we have a moment. I represented Fort Rouge at the time. And it was just at a period when that part of the city was really going through a major sort of turnover from rental housing and apartments to to condos. And there was a lot of sort of uh, misdemeanor taking place. A lot of people were being felt threatened about losing their housing. And so I, I brought a bill into the legislature which would provided certain uh, requirements and certain procedures to ensure that people were protected in doing that. And it was supported. Larry Desjardins, who was, uh, had been a liberal but went to join the NDP, seconded the motion. And I got debate. I got support from all sides of the House. To me, that was an incredibly rich experience I said, hey, it can work. I know people are saying, little oh, Joe Biden, bipartisanship, it's all foolish. Let's just go our way or the highway. No, I, I think you have to be open to broadening the circle as opposed to shrinking it.
0: Let me s- segue into what you're currently working on now, Lloyd, as being World Refugee Council, the chair of that. Let's talk about the importance of countries that look at, I think there was a stat, and I think the n- numerous times that we've had breakfast, I tried to take some notes but I think you said to me at one point, there's 80 million people around the world who have been forcibly displaced. So what can a country, and in our case, Canada, what can we do to look at assisting that? And I want to get a sense, Lloyd, from you, because so often people will say, why are we worried? We have so many local problems. Why are we worried about what's happening elsewhere in the world? Sure.
1: It's becoming even more evident in today's world that no land is an island, and I go back in my my first portfolio at the federal level was a minister of employment and immigration, and that was just when the major uh, sort of movement of Vietnam refugees was was beginning to take place, and I uh, there had been that brief period of the of uh, Joe Clark's government, and they had a, a really good guy named Ron Ackie, who was the minister of immigration at the time, and I remember when I got an appointment and. Uh, I think Ron invited me out for lunch in the parliamentary restaurant. He said, You know, Lloyd, uh, there isn't a portfolio that has more to say about what Canada is and will become than being an immigration minister, because you determine who will be the people that make it happen. And at the time, it was just we were working under a new immigration act that uh, Bud Cullen had brought in in the last years of the then Trudeau government, uh, which provided private sponsorship. And so, I became part of a group of immigration ministers. There was about 15 of us at the time who met regularly, well, not regularly every week, but every three or four months, to discuss how would we share the responsibility? People were hundreds of thousands were having to escape the Indochina Peninsula. And they were landing in Malaysia and Hong Kong and Indonesia throughout Southeast Asia. And we decided that we had to share responsibility in two ways. One, to provide a serious resettlement. But we wouldn't just kind of wave a wand or, or, or provide a sort of roundabout rhetoric. We'd actually do something. And so we were able, and I think Ron Atkin and Joe Clark started that uh, when we came in replacing them in 1980. We found that the sponsorship program for Can- individual Canadians, groups of Canadians, people around a water cooler, churches, or local community had the right to sponsor refugees. I'd like to say that I had grasp the holistic, but that was really because I didn't have a lot of money in, in my portfolio. And I thought, boy, if I can get sponsorship from a lot of Canadians, well, we, 50% of our refugees coming in at the time were sponsored. So, and as a result, here, here's, I think, it, it's, to me, it contributes why Canadians probably more than any other Western rich developed country still have a very open, tolerant view of immigration and refugees, I saw in the poll that does an annual assessment on refugees. We're still seventy percent plus of Canadians say, "Yeah, it's a good thing to do." and one reason is because Canadians now realize that refugees weren't nasty, British, they weren't rapists, they weren't drugs, they were coming in, and they were establishing a foothold, and you know the, the kind of rhetoric we heard south of the border during the Trump administration has never really been, there's some fringe groups in this country. It's not been bought by any of their political parties. So we're not, it's not like the Republicans have endorsed fully this this kind of destructive rhetoric. Canadian parties right across the spectrum have said, yeah, it's important to this country. And we're finding it increasingly important now. So uh, if I can just, something I'm I'm involved in right now as head of the Refugee Migration Council, is that we put together a task force it includes people from Canada, U.S., Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, uh, former premier, prime ministers, presidents, academics, policymakers, civil society, to start looking at how do we work in a North American, Central American context to do it together, that we share responsibility. And that's always been to me the kind of uh, the mantra. That's our kismet as a country. to that how do we provide that sharing responsibility? And I have to say this, I don't think we're as good at it as we were back in the days when I was there. where it was, I mean, I think I read something yesterday. We're looking at the massive movement coming out of Venezuela. I think we resettled something like 60 Venezuelans. Well, it wasn't too long ago when we settled 30,000 Syrians. What's the difference? Well, is it the epidemic? Is it the COVID? Or is it just we're kind of, we're beginning to shorten our horizons? And, and that's to me. I'll go back to the Ron Acquibut move. Immigration refugees are not some kind of aliens in the gate. Uh, they are part of a lifeblood of a country. And just as you have immigration for economic or financial family reasons to bring people in who have been dispossessed of any right, I mean, Stuart, you you really lead the human rights sort of messaging in this in this city. If, if to me. The right of sanctuary, the right to be protected when you've been dispossessed, whether by conflict or drug cartels or climate change or you have a right to find a place that you can protect your, where you, your family and uh, your your siblings can get by. and to me, that's still still is probably a hallmark for this country, except I don't think we're I think we fall a little bit of prey to this idea. The borders are now. We have to build them higher as opposed to building bridges
0: across them. You have seen, and as part of your portfolio, and when you've been in politics and out of politics, you've always advocated so strong that Canada is one of these very special countries. And I think you, you talked about the fact that we're kind of a middle power and you referenced the fact that we should be conveners, matchmakers, innovators, and reformers. And when you start to look at all of those elements, it does allow a nation to be a place that's welcoming to refugees. I want to just take a moment, Lloyd, because you've are you got a lot of history and you're an expert in this area. A lot of people, I think, get confused between migration, immigration, refugees. Give us a sense of, is there one area that you would say we should focus on? Are they all part of something important? Give us a sense of what does that look like.
1: Well, I mean, immigration has been happening since uh, human beings started walking on two legs. The immigration from East Africa into the Middle East, I mean, and across the Bering Peninsula and into Europe. Most countries have been... Immigration is part of their long millennium legacy. Refugees have a very specific kind of definition. And it is, it's not necessary fully a modern one, and you go back into the the histories of ancient cities and the Roman Empire, most of these places had a sanctuary in that city to help protect those who had been dispossessed. It's always been a tradition. It's been carried on in some of our churches and synagogues and mosques since then. But it became a more formal policy after the Second World War, when there was a mass movement of refugees coming out of Eastern Europe. So Russia in particular. And it was at that point when there was an incredible period of human history when the countries got together to make things work collectively, where the refugee 1948 Convention on Refugees was established. But it was a very narrow definition. It was escaping political persecution. And that represented the, the context of the time. People were escaping uh, Russia. They were escaping Nazi Germany. There was the Holocaust. And, and that was the kind of very fairly small circumference. Since then, of course, it's changed. People are forced to move now because of all kinds of other and increasingly dangerous issues. I think climate change is increasingly becoming one of the real strong motivators behind people being forced to move. Uh, we talk about what's happening in Central America, where you are all struck by the news accounts of people gathering at the U.S. border major caravans coming out. Well, I mean, it begins in, in a small community of Honduras where the agricultural capacity was basically sort of uh, denuded because large plantations took over to really grow half a million bananas as opposed to a thousand bananas. I mean, it was then, then it was really bad government. You, you had, when I was immigration minister, we brought people from El Salvador who were being, sought after by the, the death squads. In Canada, we had a special program. Pick them up before they get, when they're getting out of jail, before the death squads get them, put them on a the plane, and they arrive in the Toronto And now you're finding what we call climate refugees. In Central America, to go back to that region, the major sort of, hurricanes in the last two years have basically decimated so much of the of the community. And as a result, and then, of course, is the, the drug cartels. Which have more money and more power than a government in in the region. They prey upon young men and young women. And if you're a mother or a father, you want to get the hell out so your kid isn't sort of dragooned into one of these uh, cabals. So all those things have combined. It's a confluence of a lot of different forces. But our definition hasn't kept up. We're still working on that 1948 definition of a refugee. And we do have immigrants. And so what we talk about isn't. The word increasingly I try to use is forcibly displaced persons to cover those who are forced out of their home or their region, not for any reasons of their own slackness or their own sort of, well, there are people who want to improve themselves economically and that drove how many of our sort of forebears to this country. But uh, you just don't have a choice. If you want to live, if you want to eat, if you want to be secure in your home, then you got to leave. And I think that to me is a great conundrum of our time,
0: Lloyd. You mentioned what's uh, was on the news. I mean, Trump was building a wall. It was dominated the news in this last election. All of these families at the Mexican-U.S. border, and the you know the the, the pictures and the news. I mean, it just looked horrific. And where the children were being separated, you actually went down and visited that.
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I was invited by. U.S.-Mexico Study Center in San Diego, University of California in San Diego, to, to give some talks. And then, well, Tijuana is right across the border. They said, would you like to, there was a time when they, the camps were really building up. And so uh, Rafael Mendez, who's our the director, we've we arranged because he he's a Mexican with a lot of of uh, contacts in the government. And we were given the period of three or four days just to go to the camps and talk to people. So here's something, sir. I noticed that the demographics of the camps were really highly skewered towards women and children. And I started asking people sitting on their campsites or around their fires and said, so what happened? Well, about the time that they started moving in the caravan, the Trump administration erased two major criteria for being accepted for asylum. Number one, domestic violence. Number two, drug violence. And these women would believe that when they got to the border with their kids, that they would have a, a legitimate right to claim those criteria as a basic for entry. It was wiped out for them. And they were just gathering there with no place to go. And, I, I mean, I tried to come back and make a pitch. You and I talked about it. to How, how could Winnipeg become a, a sanctuary city? At that time, I think there's just beginning to see a little bit of a sort of uh, freezing of our own sort of sensibilities about this this issue. I'm hoping through this task force that I just talked about, that we can begin to reintegrate that.
0: Will that have any impact, Lloyd, on the conversation around the safe third country agreement between Canada and the U.S.? Is that impacted in any way, shape, or form in in this discourse you're involved in?
1: Oh, it's impacted in the sense that our council, human rights groups, lawyers, and all, including the federal court, has voted against it. But, uh, the existing governments hang on to it for reasons that I think are probably convenient for the immigration department. It's easier to have to sort of let somebody else fit who's coming to your country than doing it yourself. To me, that's just sheer sort of negligence on our part. And uh, But so far there doesn't seem to be any will or firepower to make that change.
0: And one of the things I would think that when you spent time as kind of leading the, when you were Minister of of Foreign Affairs, I guess, Global Affairs, as it is now referred to, but the same portfolio. One of the challenges must be that as you come in as the political master, if you will, of that portfolio, the importance of having the bureaucrats that are there day in, day out, day in, day out, because I mean, at some point, it's pretty impossible, despite the fact that, I mean, you learned a tremendous amount, as you said, when you to be a minister and, and uh, whether it was uh, immigration or whether it was foreign affairs, you weren't a newbie. I mean, you, you kind of knew the political system. But the political system is one thing. The whole bureaucratic system below that, Lloyd, must be something else. And I guess you wonder, to maybe just give you, if you can, how do you see that relationship? Either is it being frustrated or do you think there's a chance that things are changing at that level also?
1: When I went to foreign affairs, I was Highly sort of uh, awed by the degree of professionalism in a foreign service, but I also recognized that it was a, a little bit of a closed club. They thought they knew exactly what needed to be done, and, and many they do. They were uh, we had 120 embassies and consulates around the world. I mean, it was the what I used to call the thin red line. And it was always fascinating to read the telegrams coming in because there was a lot of smart people, but they were kind of into a little bit of a, what I would call a commedia dell'arte, roles that had been assigned and hadn't changed for centuries, And that's why it was really important to have political leadership, that not only has some experience, but also brings with it. And here's something, I sent you an essay I've just written, I said, here's a difference. As we were preparing for the 93 election under Mr. Kretchen, and I was the foreign affairs critic in the opposition, I was mandated by the prime minister. To go out and do a series of, of meetings, policy discussion on the United Nations, the ability to bring new ideas. And so we had at the time fairly interesting set of little network. We had inside the department itself a separate unit, that written read by Steve Lee, a sort of a, we call the foreign policy the foreign policy center which could reach out to Canadians, could organize conferences, could, if I saw something in a newspaper that kind of intrigued me, I'd call up Steve and say, can you check out this academic in BC who's writing about North Korea? And by the way, he did. And I got in contact and we opened up negotiations with North Korea. But there was the Pearson Peacekeeping Centers. Uh, We had, at the the time in Montreal, the whole Center on Human Rights. Those things have all been defunded, and they haven't been replaced. So we still have some civil society groups, CIC and others, but there's not anywhere near the same kind of richness of inputs that a minister can draw draw upon. So that was one thing, is that you have to keep, so your political party has to be the vehicle or engine by which ideas are generated, not just to raise money or or fight election, but a place where ideas are actually uh, nurtured and developed. I don't think that happens today in any of the political parties. I just don't see it happening. And the second part of it was, is it does help to be kind of, having been around the horn a couple of times, and to know that deputy ministers are not sacred. Some of them are terrific, and others are, can be pretty uh, sort of closed-minded and very rigid. And, and I had one minister, I won't tell the portfolio to protect the innocent. I actually had to go to the prime minister and say, you have to move him, or you have to move me. And I, I won that one. And by the way, the word got around in the bureaucracy, you know, like don't trifle with this guy. <laughs> you know, what was I doing? Well, it may sound very cheeky that I could do that. Well, at the time, I was only one of two elected Liberal cabinet ministers from Western Canada, and so I had, I had a nice. Plus, I had a good relationship with Jean cretchen, who was a very good. Prime. He gave ministers a lot of discretion to work with, and it was out of that, you know, discussion with some political people, some policy people, and senior people in the department, we came up with a human security idea, that the mandate for our department coming out of the Cold War is not just national security, but human, protecting people. And uh, we got lucky. Sometimes politics, luck plays a real play. But it was just a time when the whole issue around uh, landmines is beginning to emerge internationally. We first met, every vice was, oh yeah, well, that's a. That the, the big powers are never going to do anything about that. They all like their landmines. And we went through different uh, sort of conferences, and the civil, the coalition against landmines was out there making the case. I remember we hosted a meeting in Ottawa in 96, I guess. Yeah, 96. It was very clear that the efforts by the civil society groups and disarmament experts was to landmines no longer are effective weapon, weapon of war. They kill more civilians, 90% more civilians than the corrupt people in their armed forces. I'll make the story short, but it came to that meeting, and there was a total stalemate, until one of the senior guys in the department said, well, the minister, you know, if you really want to, I don't know if he was doing it in a joker way or really, he thought I would take it seriously, but maybe you should go tomorrow and we'll just announce that you want to bring everybody back to sign a treaty in a year. And so there's a. I said, hmm, interesting. So I got on the phone. I talked to people in the prime minister's staff. I talked to the secretary general. And so when we, I went back to meet with my advisors in the morning. I said, yeah, we're going to do it. Lots of intake of breath. I think it's history. That day we announced that Canada is going to sponsor the signing of a new treaty to ban landmines In a year's time, I mean, you all want to come back. Well, I went through some old clippings the other day. I remember... Probably should do that as an ex-politician. But I was scorched by the press. They said, Oh my God, this guy's gone off his rocker. He doesn't know what he's doing. We're not a, we can't contend with Americans and the French and the Russians and the Germans." And they said, So what? He's going to embarrass Canada. Nobody will come. A year later, we had 120 countries to sign a treaty. Once we won that battle inside the bureaucracy, the rest came easy. We go after international courts and child soldiers and small weapons because it was successful we showed that you could make policy taking a lead as a middle power
0: i have to share that i was in berkeley california and i went to a lecture put on by one lloyd axworthy about r2p right to protect it was it was fantastic and it gave me a real good sense of some of the things that you have been working at and continue to work at and I think lady Di, when she was very much engaged in that also. You really did, I think, pick an area, Lloyd, that, that people had to be led to, to understand it. And once you got them there, they clearly jumped on board. And, you know, that's credit to you.
1: Still has repercussions today. I mean, people still look at that model that we put together as a way of trying to get change and reform in the international system. Uh, I'm working with a group of others on the whole idea of an international corruption court. To because most countries in a lot of places are corrupt. A lot of people, a uh, kleptocrats get away with uh, you know, stealing money and putting it in their piggy banks around the world. Uh, and a lot of governments aren't strong enough or themselves have been uh, sort of uh, corrupted a little bit. And all of a sudden, but they're using the model of the landline campaign start with a core group of countries, build out partnerships with civil societies and with businesses and others. And we're slowly putting together. A notion that it may not come to fruition in my lifetime, but I think it's the beginning of an idea that will eventually come. Because once again, the hard reality is that sovereignty is not an exclusive principle of some divine right. It is a good way of defining the rights and obligations of nations, but it's also a way that those rights and obligations can't be used to terrorize
0: or victimize people. I read that essay, that, I, and I love that term, kleptocrat. That was uh, something, you know, that I I hadn't heard before, but that was fantastic. Lloyd, the other thing that I think is really, you know, sort of important about what your career path has taken you and, you know, to talk about the fact that uh, you're a Winnipegger, but you find yourself in front of the high authorities in Germany, particularly the current prime minister there, talking about the importance of how do you settle refugees? I think that she had some challenges because they took in a million, I think, refugees, and they didn't quite know what to do. And I think Angela Merkel is always kind of looked at as kind of the mother of the world. I mean, she's obviously been somebody with tremendous intelligence, but this, I think, had not necessarily the most positive impact upon her. And so she reached out to you to get some advice. Can you share with you what happened there?
1: Well, again, you know, sometimes it's serendipity that works, but I have been asked by the the Bosch Foundation, which is a, a offshoot of the major Bosch industries that supply everything from your toilet bowls to your posters and it just happened at the time when a large surge of refugees was coming into europe from the middle east and from the particularly from syria and at that point, Germany had never really quite dealt with the refugee problem as an internal issue and they had been Clearly, I mean the, God bless the source of the Holocaust, but they were always administratively, bureaucratically, they really weren't set up to really look at asylum resettlement. Whereas we had had the practice. I went back to my example in the Vietnam War. Here was one of the things that we learned: it's so much better to do the convening of people who are seeking asylum, giving them a vetting, checking their health away from your own border. We set up. In many of our embassies, two-thirds of the staff would be immigration officers because it was much better to do it off-border as opposed to letting huge amounts of people. Well, the Germans found themselves and below Merkel to a great credit. I mean, she will go down, really, in history as one of the real change makers. And I think they picked up on some of the ideas of first working as a question of shared responsibility. This is something that each country has to handle only on its own, which is why we're working on a North American, Central American model. But she also, I think, uh, she had the political strength to carry it through. She was in real command of, a, of the of parliament and um, her own party. That is not the case in so many governments today. I mean, we have a minority government in Canada, we had the Trump governments. And you have all kinds of now these kind of what I call a posse of populists out there So. Sort of using anti-immigration as a basis for winning power. That is, to me, is a, one of the real trend lines. As Canadians, we have to be watchful about, but we can also offer alternatives. We show how it can be done. And this is not some kind of in the breast. It's just that we've been able to nurture a system that works for us and in which Canadians approve them. And I think that's, that's one of the lessons we have to take to, and continue to take to the world. Because I can tell you this, sir, it's not going to get much better because the impact of climate around the world, when I wrote that 80 million, it's now 80 plus every month or two, another one or two. And nobody can be immune from that because people are going to find a place where their kids can be secure or they think they're going to be secure. And as a result, we have to work together. And it's in a little bit of a mismatch of, of the time and the events. We've got an epidemic. Uh, you've got the uh, climate change, you've got ongoing conflicts, and none of those are really being handled in a global way with great deal of effectiveness.
0: How would you say COVID has impacted this conversation, Lloyd? I think it.
1: I mean, it, clearly, it's it's represented a, a clear and present danger, and as you're now beginning to read so many of the sort of uh, scenarios, we knew it was coming, but. Governments were not ready, prepared to invest, including our own. We shut down public health programs. Our own virology lab in in this city was, you know, this is, a, I think, a bureaucratic thing primary. It pulled a lot of its research and its top-flight scientists, and whether they took them back to all, I just think they just cut the budgets, pure and simple. But it's also happening all kinds of places that the scientists weren't being listened to. The epidemiologists uh, were kind of considered to be somehow kind of a, a weird characters. That's one of the lessons that we have to have a much better early warning system so we're not reacting, but we can start preempting. On the other hand, I'm not sure we would everybody would say this is a great thing, but I think the uh, the COVID has opened up our eyes on a lot of inequities and dissidents in our own societies that we were ignoring. The inequity of, I mean, just the whole issue. We don't we like to applaud frontline workers. Well, all those frontline workers are poorly paid, don't have proper housing, and they're not being serviced very well. Uh, And that's particularly true in other parts of the world. We've been witnessing in those last three or four weeks. After the major outbreak in India, people started waking up to the fact that there had to be a global answer to COVID. If if the epidemic was allowed to spread in highly populated areas, it was gonna come back to bite us. There's no way you can be immune because people get on planes, they travel, I mean, it's all the same. So I think it's, it's opened up for me kind of a prism that reflects a little bit, a little bit more on where we're at, it gives us a clearer sight. And that's why I think we need to do a lot of sort of, uh, I'm not saying new thinking, but thinking about let's now go back to normal. Let's not, we want to get back to the golf course and, and the patios, but we also have to get back to determining what kind of labor protection, health protection, and income protection we provide for people in our own uh, jurisdiction.
0: So I'm going to give you one plug, Lloyd, and I'm going to close with a question. So the plug is for anybody listening to this podcast, I highly recommend that you go to Canada Among Nations. There is an essay called Reflections on 2020, Awakening to a World of Risk that is written by my guest today, Lloyd Axworthy. It is a great read. It is a great read. Well done. My question to you as the And this is the part that's amazing is that I want to tie this in because, you know, my whole podcast is to really feature local advocates, experts who are doing things locally, but have an impact internationally. You are right out of central casting for that, Lloyd. I mean, you are the World Refugee Council, the chair of the World Refugee Council. And I would ask you to what, as somebody who's local, what can we do from a local basis to assist what you are doing globally.
1: I want to go back to something you know, that uh, Mayor Bowman talked about just when he was elected. I know you've talked about it. I think you know, one of the major sort of civic figures uh, of our time, who well, I'm talking about, human rights, that Winnipeg should be a human rights city. And that means human rights, not just in terms of protecting kind of liberties, but also protecting those whose rights have been taken away. And I think that we could be a leading, the way in Winnipeg to open up, and I don't mean in a great rush or surge, but to do it effectively, but that we also use our skill because one thing, you know, growing up in North Winnipeg, you realize we know how to handle diversity. We haven't always done it really well. And I think the condition that's also been revealed about the circumstance of of Aboriginal communities and residential schools and the way it's such an impact on their lives, those are big issues that we have to come to grips with. But I think the refugee issue is one, especially at a time when this country and this city and this province are going to need more people of energy and talent. And you only have to go along Sergeant Avenue to find all the Vietnam restaurants and stuff that we benefited from those original surges. And I think that, I think if we could get our heads around it as a city, and I know it's hard when you're, you know, when, well, we've been hunkering down, everybody's been locked up. But now as we get a little bit more freedom, a little bit more sort of, Ability to, to co-join and, and to get together at Ray and Jerry's on Friday and talk about conditions of the world. But it's now time to begin thinking, well, what kind of role do we want to play as a place where human rights really is a priority?
0: Yeah, well said. I mean, again, keeping it local, giving a shout out to a local restaurant, it's fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed, as I always do, the opportunity to share conversation with you. Today has been enlightening, as it always is. Lloyd, I just want to take all the moment just to say thank you for what you have done, what you continue to do, and thank you for taking time to join me on my podcast, Humans on Rights.
1: I appreciate all the above, and I just hope I can continue to do it for a while.
0: Look forward to it. You take care.
1: Okay, sir. For sure. You take care. Buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social
0: media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bityuan, Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to
1: humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.